Good morning, fellowship. Welcome to all of you here in person and to those of you who are worshiping with us online, perhaps in warmer, sunnier weather than we're having in Michigan. We are grateful that we are together, near and far, worshiping the one Lord that holds us all together. Today is the first Sunday of Lent. Now, I might say this about every season in the church year, but I'm pretty sure this one's my favorite. <laughs> it is a season of renewal and spring cleaning of the heart. It's a season where we are reminded to once again return to God and to find mercy in our time of need. It is a season marked by preparation for resurrection joy at Easter. For centuries, Christians around the world have viewed the season of Lent as an opportunity to draw closer to Christ in his suffering and humility. For many Christians, fasting from something during this season helps to deepen our awareness that we are dependent upon God alone, and it opens us up to new ways of knowing Jesus. For some Christians, rather than letting go of something, they have found that adding a nourishing habit or practice during the season of Lent has been a way of seeing God more clearly. Either way, it's a season of spaciousness, perhaps even wilderness, to open our hearts wide to God's sustaining love as we prepare for Easter. An ancient Christian practice for many congregations is to bury the Alleluia. How many have heard of that before? No, great. We're going to learn about it together for the season of Lent. This is a richly symbolic, and yet it simply means we refrain from singing or saying the word Alleluia in our songs and our liturgy together, burying the Alleluia or setting it aside until Easter morning. In our gathered worship at Fellowship this season, we're going to join in that Lenten practice of fasting and anticipation setting the word Alleluia aside for a time in order to experience greater joy and appreciation on Easter morning when we celebrate Christ's resurrection. Whatever our return to familiar rhythms in this season looks like, 
Our hope and desire is that during this season of Lent, we will all full-heartedly embrace our need of Christ, that we will once again turn towards Jesus, accepting our human limitations, following him to his passion and suffering, and most importantly, ever expanding in love for one another because we are encountering God's deep, wide, radical, limitless, and sacrificial love for us. Would you stand and let's sing together? Jesus
Friends, today we are reminding ourselves of the clear command in Scripture to forgive, to forgive freely, and to forgive even 77 times, according to Jesus. A common church question in this particular season is, what are you giving up for Lent? Besides chocolate, you might also say resentment, contempt, the need to retaliate. And if we select those things, we are moving in the direction of forgiveness of others. Our prayer practice for this morning is about loving enemies and forgiving faults. And I want to offer a special thanks to fellowshipians Jeff Heisman and Chris Corsi, who have been practicing this kind of prayer weekly for almost a year straight. And we're going to enter into that kind of prayer together this morning. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we admit today in this fallen world that often hurt happens. And then, of course, hurt people hurt people, and it's a vicious cycle. Our enemies are the ones who have hurt us, or the ones that we fear might hurt us. Sometimes our enemies are far away, and the battle is mostly in our heads. Other times our enemies are close by, too close, even in our own homes, and the battle is daily. Sometimes a flagrant wrong has been done. Other times, the problem is not easily identifiable, only an enemy feeling. Whatever the situation is, I choose now to sit with you, O oh God, with an enemy in mind. I say their name in your presence, and I confess my problem with them. I trust, loving Father, that this enemy of mine is still a child of yours, one of your image bearers. And so I ask, O oh God, what do you want me to know about this person today? picture this enemy's family, and I imagine their life story. I pray for something good to happen to them. Finally, I ask for grace and wisdom and strength to not return evil for evil, but rather to overcome evil with goodness. What if it's true, O oh God, as your good book says, that we your people have been given the ministry of reconciliation. What if it's true, O oh God, that as your children, we are called to be peacemakers, not only to have inner peace as individuals, not only to be not fighting, 
interpersonally or internationally, but to be peacemakers, reconcilers, rupture repairers. Please teach us, O oh God, to forgive even our enemies, just as Jesus did when he said from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Thank you, O oh God, that we have already been forgiven, and please help us to be forgivers. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you, Bell Choir, for that wonderful song and the reminder in it, the story of amazing grace, that it is because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection that we have peace with God and peace with one another. So the peace of Christ be with you. My name is Ross Dealman, one of the pastors here at Fellowship Church, where together it is our mission to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. We're glad for the many of you who are joining us in that mission together. And if you're new, either in person or online, we'd love to get to know you. We have connection cards available, opportunities to make yourself known online or here in person at our welcome desk. We'd love to get to know you. Another great way to do that is a thing we call community nights. Every Wednesday night, we gather here and have a meal together and then have activities for all ages. You are certainly invited to join us for that. The meal is at 545, and the activities start at 630. This week starts up a few new options. Of course, there's continuing ones for children and youth and more, but a new class, this is listed in your bulletin, starts this week with Chris Corsi. It's on the back there. Uh, it's about thriving, about relational skills in practice. Chris Corsi is one of those folks I just mentioned for the prayer that we just shared together. This is relational skills for people of all ages, married, single, young, old, whatever. Um, it is uh, a class of practice and a good opportunity to join in. There's a QR code on the back of the bulletin there where you can sign up for that course or another one that's coming up in the future with Suzanne McDonald. Uh, about dealing faithfully with dementia. So please do sign up. We'd love to have you around. And of course, uh, you can also just show up. That's how things work around here as well. So uh, next week, Sunday, is the first of the month again. And we will gather at this table, the Lord's table for communion in worship. And then afterwards, we will go to table to table and gather in community in the gym spaces over there. In particular, next week's table to table meal out there is our youth fundraiser, the auction, an opportunity not only to enjoy good food and good company around tables together, but also to support our youth and uh, their uh, upcoming plans for the summer to go out. Uh, on mission and, and discipleship together. So you'll learn more about that as you show up next week for our meal. It's after the second service. We look forward to being together with you at that. As you know, we're in this season of Lent, and unfortunately there was an ice storm this past uh, Wednesday night for Ash Wednesday. Many of you joined us online for that uh, worship service. You could still find it online and join us for it, but also this is Lent 1, and our gallery just outside of the sanctuary there uh, is going to be filling up with our own fellowshipian artists, including the first installment today. And so I want to invite you to take a look at a video from Lori Stump, who has made the first piece of art and tells a little bit of the story on this video. My name's Lori Stump, and my painting is kind of a triptych, which means three paintings together of the verse that I had uh, in Matthew 26, which is called The Anointing at Bethany, where the woman anointed Jesus' feet with very expensive perfume. And on one side of the triptych, you see the disciples that are annoyed that she spent that much money on that when they could have given the money to the poor. And on the right side is Jesus sitting ready to be anointed and then in the middle is a close-up of the actual anointing and then in the background of the two outside panels is 
Lazarus rising from the dead because they're in Bethany and that's where Lazarus was from and where Jesus performed that miracle. And then on the right side is you see the three crosses in the background kind of foreshadowing Jesus being anointed for his burial and just pulling that all together in three pieces. And that's the first installment that will grow throughout these Sundays in Lent together. As you can see on the cover of our bulletin, we're focusing on passion that teaches, Jesus' passion that teaches, which includes our own doing. And uh, some of that is expressed even in art, and those are centering on some of the big stories of Jesus' passion in action on our behalf. We'll also be doing some of that together. In fact, right after this service, you are invited. We'll have two installments of this. But part of our with love practice is to be doing for others. And we're going to pack 800 snack packs today. Okay, And so you're invited. We need your help to do this. Uh, uh, Karen Donker right there is going to be our helper right there. The tables are already set. You maybe saw them on your way in. But first service folks, you're invited to stick around. In between service, we're shooting for packing 400 of these. It's in partnership with our hand-to-hand ministries, which will take these foods literally from our hands into the hands of folks in our West Ottawa community. Um, And uh, so we invite you to stick around and do that together. And then the second service, we'll do another 400 and we'll have 800 of them together. There's some more instructions in the bulletin about that. Otherwise, just stick around and we'll do it together. At this point, I'm going to be dismissing our kids, but as I do that, I want to name that we've had middle schoolers in the building all night. There was an all-nighter, and they're lined up right there. So middle schoolers and leaders, hoorah for you leaders. Thank you. Uh, And they're heading off to Sunday school alongside kids as well. You're dismissed to go to your discipleship opportunities together. And we are going to stand here in the sanctuary, and at home, you're welcome to stand as well, and we'll sing, What Wondrous Love Is This?
Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you saw us as children of yours, sons and daughters, rather than foes. Rather than leave us far off from you, you sought us and you formed us into a new family. And in doing so, you marked us as your own. We are so grateful that we get to gather as your family this morning to pray to you, to sing to you, to pray for others in the presence of you, and to study your scriptures together. And as we turn toward those scriptures, we pray that you would open our hearts that we might see, open our ears that we might hear, and open our hearts that we might love. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. Good morning, fellowship. My name is Tiara. I'm one of the pastors here. If I've not yet met you, and this morning, we are doing a couple things. We are continuing in a series uh, where we've been focusing on the Gospel of Matthew and specifically the way that the Gospel of Matthew presents Jesus not only as Lord, not only as Savior, not only as friend, but also as teacher. Uh, but we're also kind of coming into a, a kind of micro-series of sorts, um, specifically uh, focusing on the passion of Jesus and the way that that teaches us through um, the teachings of Jesus around his passion and the works of Jesus around his passion, um, how, who is this Christ that we follow and what does it mean to follow him? And not just to follow him in an ideal world, but to follow him in the broken, warped, misdirected, and sinful world that we actually inhabit. I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but we inhabit a world in which people don't always do the right thing. Have you noticed that? You notice that? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Don't always do the right thing toward God or their fellow humans or creation, which we have traditionally called sin. Uh, but we also inhabit a world in which people don't entirely know how to deal with sin. I would contend that much of our cancel culture and public shaming and our social media unfriending and unfollowing and our avoidance of that one person or that one family member or that one church or, or even our West Michigan aggressive, which is a different version of passive aggressive or our very New England aggressive, which is basically just aggressive aggressive. Uh, whichever response to sin and brokenness, uh, all of it is indicative of a world and of people who are bereft of the spiritual resources to deal with sin and brokenness, which is understandable when you think about it because sin is not just some abstract theological category out there. It's not just the stuff of a book called Leviticus that was written thousands of years ago. Sin is the very real and very present condition and deeds, but condition of the human heart that gives rise to all sorts of things that we encounter. Bullying and harassment and abuse and assaults and slander and gossip and lies and affairs and, and also leaves very real pain and very real scars on the lives and the hearts and the relationships of real people. And so the question becomes, how do we follow Jesus faithfully in this world? How do we learn to love God and our neighbors in God faithfully in this world? You know, the one in which everyone doesn't always do the right thing. In a world in which we, ourselves, and others around us fail and fail often. I think today's text gives us a glimpse into just that. In today's text, Jesus gives us a teaching about mercy that helps us to understand what it looks like to follow him in an imperfect world full of sinners like me and you. 
So if you have your Bibles, uh, hear the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 18, picking up in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jumping down to verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often will, I, will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And then Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought before him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have, mercy, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And out of pity for him, great compassion for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, small sum by comparison, and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe to me. And so this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And the man refused and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt when you, because you pleaded with me. And should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his own debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our text begins in a slightly different way than Jesus' usual MO. Usually Jesus begins with a parable and then one of the disciples asks a question and then Jesus explains the parable. This time Jesus begins with a teaching and then a disciple asks a question and then he follows up explaining the teaching with a parable. So I actually wanna start with the question that Peter asked because it's dead center in the middle of the things that are happening and I think it's a really important question. How often will a person in my life sin against me and I forgive this person, Peter asks. Remember, Peter is the disciple who always raises his hand first. Peter is the disciple who always raises a question. And if you pay attention, you notice Peter is the person who's asking a question that the other disciples are probably thinking. In fact, Peter is probably asking a question that maybe we ourselves have considered. How often will a person repeatedly sin against me, repeatedly wound me, and I just keep extending forgiveness to them. But Peter doesn't just ask the question, he also ventures a potential response, thinking that he's maybe stretching to the outer limits of human forgiveness. What do you think, Jesus, seven times? I mean, that's gotta be sufficient, right? And then Jesus replies, how about 77 times? Now you might be wondering, why is Jesus doing math when Peter asks him a question about forgiveness? seven times versus 77 times. 
And that would be a fantastic question. And when you know it, Jesus is actually answering Peter very directly. In fact, Jesus' answer goes back, any surprises with me, it goes back to the Old Testament. <laughs> it goes back to a familiar story in our scriptures from Genesis chapter four, the story of Cain and Abel. Briefly, for the benefit of those who don't know the story, Cain was the firstborn son of his parents, Adam and Eve. And eventually, Adam and Eve give birth to a second son named Abel. And Cain and Abel grow up like two normal brothers. But eventually, Cain grows very envious of his brother Abel because God seems to be very pleased with Abel and maybe not so pleased with Cain. And God sees the envy consuming Cain's heart and God draws near to Cain, which is sort of different than what we think God does in moments like this. And God says to Cain, comes to Cain with a warning, an existential warning of sorts. He says to him, sin is crouching at your door, waiting to devour you. But instead of allowing it to master you, you must master it. But as the story goes, Cain doesn't heed God's warning to him. Instead, one day, while he and his brother are out in a field, he lashes out and he kills him. God draws near to Cain once again, only this time with a few questions, but to no avail. Cain is unremorseful, unrepentant. He almost seems to be more burdened by the mention of his brother's name than over the fact that he has killed him. Because, God says, Cain cursed the ground with his brother's blood, the ground will now struggle against him. Cain is a farmer as he tries to grow food. And, God says, he will be a wanderer, a fugitive um, upon the land. Now, Cain begins to complain that his punishment is too harsh, that people will come across him and they will be angry with him and want to kill him, which is kind of ironic, right? And so God hears Cain's pleas and he has mercy on Cain and he responds to Cain, not so. Anyone who kills you, vengeance shall be taken on him. How many times? Seven times. Cain himself chooses to depart from the presence of the Lord. I must hide from the presence of God or hide from the presence of the Lord, Cain says. And so he retreats from the presence of the Lord and he settles in the land of Nod. And Nod is a word that means uh, wandering or exile. He settles in the land of exile and out from the presence of the Lord, he builds a city. The law of the city, the city of wandering and exile and fugitives, is sevenfold vengeance for those who commit wrongs against one another. The city Cain founds is like Dunkin' Donuts. It runs on vengeance. But here's where it gets even more interesting. Cain has a few kids of his own with his wife, who exists, and we're just going to skip right over that for right now. And, <laughs> and uh, several generations later, Cain's great, great, great grandson, Lamech, uh, comes home from the office one day, and he comes to his two wives, which, by the way, is not an endorsement of bigamy or polygamy, but the scripture's way of actually pointing to how far things have fallen from God's original vision for creation. So Lamech comes to his two wives, and uh, he says to them, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I have to say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And if Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, my vengeance is 77-fold. If vengeance for Cain is seven times, vengeance for me, Lamech says, is 77 times. And what is the vengeance for, you might ask? for wounding or think bruising him or for striking him, think literally hitting him. 
Now, if Lamech were talking to his therapist, his therapist might say, that's a bit of an outsized reaction, don't you think? It's a little bit of an overcorrection, don't you think? It's disproportionate to the original misdeed. It's an overcorrection of the original misdeed. The Christian intellectual tradition wisely distinguishes between righteous anger and wrath. Uh, I pull this from Thomas Aquinas and a couple other folks who have studied Thomas Aquinas, uh, that there's a difference between righteous anger and wrath. Both are concerned with justice or correcting an injustice, but righteous anger is what propels us to correct an injustice that we or others around us have experienced, rather than let fear force us to shrink back in um, fear or worse into cowardice. Righteous anger is when we see a bully picking, not necessarily on ourselves, but maybe someone else on a playground, and we are moved, we are moved to interrupt him or her. Righteous anger. Wrath, on the other hand, or vengeance, on the other hand, is when anger, even righteous anger, becomes disproportionate and disordered. Disproportionate because it punches someone over a joke. Disproportionate because it kills someone who merely hits them. It's disordered because it may not even be aimed at the right target, like when you fight with your sibling and then you take it out on your classmate or your spouse, or when you're angry with it over an injustice and you react by destroying local businesses. Wrath is anger that has become disproportionate or disordered. It goes past justice and it overcorrects. Have you heard the story recently about the choreographer uh, I read about it in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago. Um, apparently, he received a bad review from a critic, and in response to this bad review, uh, he sourced animal excrement, um, and then he shoved this critic's face in it. Overreaction, overcorrection, disproportionate. Yeah, gross, right? Yeah, overcorrection. <laughs> um, wrath or vengeance is anger that has become disproportionate and or disordered. But it's not just disproportionate and disordered, it boasts in it. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold and Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold, Lamech's boast goes beyond great-great-great-grandpa Cain's lack of remorse. In fact, Lamech's boast is displaying his pride, his, his bra he's bragging, actually. Uh, he's so pleased with himself over his actions that he writes a poem about it in the car on his way home from work. Now, it's easy to mock, but only if you think that Lamech is an anomaly. Who hasn't come home from the office with a story about evening the score with that one coworker? Who hasn't sent a text about evening the score with that one classmate? Who hasn't smirked over coffee or happy hour about that brilliant one-liner you had for the competitor down the road? And who hasn't thought about the one thing that you should have said or the one thing you should have done days later in the shower? We've all been there. Genesis 4 gives us a theological history of vengeance. And these scriptures warn us, this existential warning that goes to Cain comes to us too in Genesis 4, that in exchange for the wounds that we ourselves have experienced, the desire for vengeance just sort of wells up within us, within our souls like a spring. And it has the capacity to not just be disproportionate, but gratuitous, completely gratuitous. It sort of puts Peter's question in a perspective, doesn't it? How often will a person sin against me and I forgive them? Maybe just seven times? And Jesus says, no, not just seven times, 77 times. And then Jesus offers a parable to explain. 
And in this parable, Jesus says, the world is inhabited by debtors, by people who have racked up a tremendous amount of debt. And it seems that they have not only wronged one another, but they have also wronged the king to whom they belong. And they don't just owe debts. They and everyone they love are enslaved by those debts for all eternity because they will never earn enough on their own to pay back what they owe. But Jesus' parable is not about the debt, interestingly, but rather about how the king responds to the debt. When a debtor begs the king for mercy, the king not only releases him from the bondage of his debt, but also forgives his debt. It's a beautiful metaphor. To forgive a debt is to remit the debt or to cancel the debt or to send it away or to set it aside. Out of the deep compassion that wells up within the king, the king moves to set the debtor free and to set his debt aside. In this parable, Jesus paints a vivid picture of mercy. And it's actually just as poetic as Lamech's boast. That rather than boast in the gratuitous vengeance of God, Jesus chooses to boast in the gratuitous mercy of God. Mercy that is even more gratuitous than even the vengeance that sits within the hearts of the Lamics of the world. Not only that, but Jesus warns his disciples that the servant who receives the gratuitous mercy of God, the servant who begs for the, rece- the, 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 the gratuitous uh, mercy of God, the servant who is lavished, lavished with the gratuitous mercy of God, but then chooses to withhold it from others, chooses to not extend it to others, chooses to not pass it on to others, that servant, Jesus says, will be forced to bear their own debt. The threat of Jesus here sort of takes your breath away a bit, but these are stern words that actually point to something that Jesus is doing. It points to the fact that mercy is not just about us. It's not just about our hearts. It's about what God is building It's about the kingdom that Jesus is founding. It's about the city that Jesus is establishing. And unlike the city that Cain founds away from the presence of God, the city that Jesus founds is located right in the heart of the presence of God. And rather than running on vengeance, this city runs on mercy. And not just mercy multiplied one time or even seven times, but 77 times. It's relentless. We follow a compassionate king who would dare free debtors and set aside their debts. And to live in his city, to follow him, is to ourselves do likewise, to free the debtors in our lives and to set aside the debtors in our, set aside the debt of the debtors in our lives. Jesus invites us in every moment to be conduits of mercy rather than conduits of vengeance. But anyone who has ever been wounded by another knows that this is easier said than done. Here's what I mean. There's a guy named James Kimmel, uh, James Kimmel Jr., not Jimmy Kimmel, but James Kimmel Jr. And uh, he has a really interesting story. He, uh, He grew up in a farming community, rural farming community, and his dad was an insurance agent. Uh, So needless to say, he did not fit in very well. Uh, In fact, not only did he not fit in, he was bullied relentlessly by his classmates. And um, at one point, the bullies went so far as to uh, hurt his family dog and leave it for he and his family to find. And they even left a bomb in his mailbox one day, which was the day that Kimmel had just completely had enough. He snapped. Um, He grabbed his dad's gun. He jumped in the family truck, and he went and found the bullies. He cornered them in a barn, 
And he says he, he remembers aiming at these bullies and his hands on the trigger and he suddenly freezes and just this like still, still, still small voice um, says to him, if you murder them, it's like murdering yourself. And he says he backs away, he goes home. Uh, eventually though, Kimmel was trained as a lawyer and now he does research from, uh, with Yale School of Medicine around the motives for uh, mass acts of violence, mass shootings in America. And he said Kimmel, he and his team found that something like 60% of school shootings are motivated um, by real or perceived um, offenses, slights, like bullying and rejection. It seems that Kimmel and his team have uncovered through psychological and sociological research what Genesis 4 has known all along, that in response to real or perceived wounds perpetrated by others, fallen human instincts strive, strive to wound them back not just seven times the original offense, but 77 times the original offense. But the city Cain built is no longer the city that you and I inhabit, even if those instincts for vengeance are still operating within us. Instead, we are citizens of a different sort of kingdom, one that runs not on gratuitous, gratuitous vengeance, but on gratuitous mercy. Gratuitous mercy frees us from our bondage to sin and death and darkness. Gratuitous mercy sets aside our debt. But gratuitous mercy doesn't stop there because it actually radically restores us and our debtors too. In fact, in the teaching that precedes Peter's question, Jesus teaches us the precise way in which it does so. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If the worldly response to being wounded is simply to wound back, the Jesus way is actually quite revolutionary. It is truly merciful, Jesus says, to move toward someone who has wronged us, not to destroy them, but to be a part of their restoration in Christ, not to destroy the relationship, but to participate in the restoration of the relationship. And that restoration looks like prayerfully acknowledging the sin and the misdeeds for what they are failures to love God and love our neighbors in God, and then lamenting what those failures do to us and everyone else involved, the ways that they deform us and others. We get to lay our honest, tear-soaked, and sometimes even rage-filled laments before the foot of the cross, knowing that while God does not stoke our resentment, he definitely hears our tears and he hears our anguish. In and through the cross of Christ, God heals and restores us so that we can then forgive rather than destroy others. But God's mercy doesn't just restore us. It restores our debtors too. And it is out of the restoring power of mercy within us that Jesus sends us to participate in one another's restoration. This means that contrary to the popular notion of mercy uh, and forgiveness, that it's exclusively about us and our feelings and our own hearts, what Jesus actually teaches us in this teaching is that it's about our participation in God's project to redeem and to restore. While victims and victimizers alike may decline to participate in the redemption and the restoration that God would have for us, they are all invited nonetheless. So a practical consideration here. Uh, the difference between justice and mercy, as, as I've learned them um, over the years, is that justice is, is getting what you deserve, and mercy, quite frankly, is not. In mercy, we don't get what we deserve, and praise God for that. 
I was taught this lesson in the most whimsical way a couple years ago. I was on my way back from Shenandoah, uh, actually, no, uh, Smokies. I was on my way back from the Smokies, and I had chosen, unfortunately, the Memorial Day weekend to travel back to Michigan. Yeah, on the way back, I stopped at Chick-fil-A and Starbucks. cost me 35 minutes, and I thought, well, I'll make that time up on the road. So I'm flying up the highway, doing something like 93, give or take five miles an hour, and <laughs> I stumble up, I, I like come up on this car that's in the passing lane, and the car doesn't move over. And so then I get behind the car and I kind of hover behind them and they still don't move over. And then I flash my lights as a signal, like, hey, I'm back here. They still don't move over. So then I decide to pass the car on the right. And I, I'm, not, I'm not proud of this. I don't do this anymore, I promise. <laughs> I decide to uh, pop over in front of them as a signal of like, hey, people are passing you, you should move over. And so as I'm looking up in the rearview mirror to see if the car is catching my signal, I notice a gate separating the front seat from the back seat. And my heart stops, yeah. <laughs> I, so I stopped breathing for like eight seconds. And then uh, <laughs> like, okay, well, what are the chances he didn't see any of that? So I, I move over into the middle lane. And uh, eventually this, this police, this unmarked police car kind of catches up to me. Why am I still going 93 miles an hour? I don't know. And, <laughs> and he, he gets my attention. He rolls this window down and he does this. And I, I kid you not, 93 miles an hour, I'm like, totally, totally, <laughs> totally. <laughs> mercy, <clears throat> mercy is decidedly not getting what you deserve. But notice the difference though. Mercy is also not confronting reckless behavior and the impact that that could have on other people. Mercy intervenes and mercy doesn't repay you what you are owed for your actions. For me, I tend to practice this very simply as just, as just simply ratcheting down rather than escalating a conflict. What's something less than what the person I think deserves um, that I can do? Maybe kindness instead, maybe prayer instead, maybe service instead. Mercy is giving someone less than what you think they deserve. But how do you get yourself prepared to be able to do this? Um, for that, on the cards that you received coming in, is a prayer practice. Um, it's a little bit of an imaginative prayer practice, and it comes out of several streams of, of thought. I, I was having a conversation with uh, Reverend Chris Corsi, who will be starting a class this week. Um, and I was also sitting with Calvin's, um, uh, just a, a note from Calvin that I couldn't find, and so I couldn't quote it for you. But, uh, but in it, Calvin talks about this idea of loving your enemies. And he specifically says that we don't, um, we don't attend to our enemies based on what they deserve, but we actually attend to the image of God within them. And so in that practice that's on your card, there's this direct call back to attend to the image of God within a person, to attend to what it is that God and who it is that God has created them to be, to notice what it is that God would have you to notice about them um, and to pray for them and to serve them in ways that bring about more and more of the image of God within them. And in doing so, we extend not only mercy to them, but we ourselves become more of the image of God, more of the image of Christ as well. I'll close with this. Uh, Jesus paints a picture for us of a community called the church in which those who live and worship together love each other so much and so well um, that they not only address the things that stand in the way of love of God and love of neighbor in their midst, but that they also humbly, humbly listen to each other. They humbly discern the truth together. They humbly receive correction from one another, almost like they're a family. 
This is a community in which gratuitous mercy begins to transform us, um, transform our relationships with one another, and make us all a little bit more like Christ every step of the way. And there's plenty of opportunities to practice this and to get better at it, because as it turns out, we fail often. But in doing so, in stepping into this practice, I think we become a more compelling community to a watching world that is used to the ratcheting up of vengeance, that is exhausted by it, and that quite frankly needs to see people who instantiate something of God's divine mercy toward us with one another and toward others who have wronged us. That is the hardest place from which to practice that, and it is also the most miraculous place from which to practice it. Gratuitous mercy is gratuitous not just because of what it does for us and not just because of what it does within us, but also because of what it does through us and around us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your deep compassion for us that sees us always as sons and daughters, whether we're far off or close to you. Jesus Christ, we are so grateful for your love shown to us on the cross. And Holy Spirit, we are so grateful that you conform us to this love, that you shower us with this love, that you lavish us with this love so that we can go and do likewise. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. Friends, we love because he first loved us, and we can forgive because we have been forgiven. So our response this morning is to really offer a prayer that Christ would fill our hearts, that we would be in tune with God's heart for this world and for one another. Would you stand and let's sing together.
benediction, um, I just want to remind you again that our um, Matthew 25-esque uh, act of mercy for this morning is feeding the hungry. We're packing snack packs in the atrium after this. Um, would love to see you there. Uh, and with that, brothers and sisters, um, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And at this time, I invite you to sing the doxology with us. of the post loop, which sounds lovely. Uh, <laughs> we'll sing the doxology together.